Within arm's reach is a Bible. Would you grab it? Open it up with me to page 882. That's where you can find Luke chapter 22. You're watching at home. Pause this video. Go grab your Bible at home, your own Bible. Maybe you brought your own Bible to church today. Again, that's page 882. Uh, While you're turning there, imagine if you would, a car wreck that unfolds before your eyes in slow motion. There are all the warning signs. Speed limit, and the red light, and the brake lights, and there is someone at fault, someone who should have known better, who could have done something about that, but ignored the signs. Uh, Fortunately for you, you're unhurt, you can walk away because from your vantage point you saw this taking place, the events that led up to this and the events now that are taking place after the crash is taking place and of course in any car accident there are always witnesses from their own unique point of view who saw the events take place. Our text today is a collision waiting to happen. One that will end with a casualty. And there are multiple points of view in this true story. There are the disciples in the upper room arguing with one another. And there is Peter who's arguing with Jesus. And then there's our view as well. And thanks to The gospel writer Luke, we have our own vantage point. We stand outside the events of the text in history. We can see what led up to the things that happened in the upper room that night. We can see also as we fast forward into the gospel and as we will over the next few weeks, what took place after the events that we're reading about today. And there is Jesus in the center of it all who will not walk away unscathed. We can see the events set in motion by the evil in the upper room that will take his life. Jesus tells us that these events are unavoidable. The end of our gospel reading for today, Jesus says this, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. That phrase is three letters in Greek, like our English letters, D-E-I, day, we might say it in English, the Greek word day, 100 times it's used in the New Testament, 14 times in Luke's gospel. Jesus is talking over and over about how these events must take place. He's quoting Isaiah, and he was numbered with the transgressors for what was written about me has its fulfillment. Here's what I'd like to do over the next couple of minutes of our time together. This is the first Sunday in Lent. The first of many times we'll be looking at the last hours of the life of Jesus. But I'd like to look in particular today at this event that took place through the eyes of two people. First, the disciples who have their own vantage point. We read about them at the beginning of our text. And then second, Peter himself and the conversation that he has with Jesus about his denial. And we have to do this, my friends. 
Because let's be honest. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning planning to get in a car wreck. Nobody wakes up in the morning planning to make the mistakes that they make. Let's have the humility for just a few moments to consider that around the next bend of our life, could be tomorrow, could be today, there are unseen consequences for the choices that we're making right now, right here today. First, let's turn to the disciples. You got your Bible open, I hope you do. Let's look first at verse 24. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. Let's pause right there. Now, this isn't the first time that we've overheard the disciples from the back seat arguing about which one of them is the best. They sound like a bunch of bickering brothers. And it's a bit of a silly argument, isn't it? I mean, here they are in the presence of the greatest one of all, the, the greatest one who will ever walk the face of the earth. It's a bit of a silly argument. It's kind of like arguing about who the next best player on the LA Lakers is. I mean, after LeBron James, does it really matter? And I'm not even a LeBron James fan, I'm a sports fan. It's a silly argument. But Jesus teaches them and us something about what it means to be truly great. Let's keep reading verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. I'm the greatest, and it doesn't matter how great I am. Here's a definition of greatness that I like. Greatness is not caring about being great. I mean, think for a moment of the people who you know who seem to be at rest with who they are, have a sense of inner confidence that is sort of almost even magnetic that draws you to them, a sense of charisma. Chances are what makes them that way is a great deal in part that they don't care how important or great they are. They're okay with who they are and they're okay with who they're not. Greatness is about not caring about being great. And by the same token, greatness is not caring about being small. Because those same people and the people that you admire most won't think twice about going out of their way to do something hard, to do something difficult, to do something that seems insignificant or beneath them, that seems small. Greatness is about there's not caring about being great. It's not caring about being small. But here are the disciples wrapped up in their own pride arguing about who the greatest is among them. Did they mean to do that? Did they wake up in the morning intending to get into an argument? Probably not, but they did. Let's pull over and ask ourselves a question. We're not the disciples in the upper room that night, but how are we like them? How do you know? that being great matters more to you than it should. 
when you're on your phone scrolling through pictures of the lives of other people and you find yourself comparing yourself to them. My life is better or the empty feeling that you have when you set your phone down because your life isn't like their great life. And whether you do that or not, the things that drive you the crazy about other people, that make you the most frustrated about them, can tell you way more about you than it can tell you about them. About the ways that we in our pride think that we have it together in ways that they don't. The little things that we build our identity and our self-worth on, no matter what we may say we believe about Jesus, how we're better drivers than they are, how we're more organized or more on time, how we are more moral than they are, You're not the disciples in the upper room, but you're like them far more than you'd like to admit. They could have stopped, but they didn't. First, the disciples. Let's turn now to Peter. Let's jump down in our text to verse 31. Jesus is talking to Simon Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Let's pause right there. Here we hear echoes. We hear sort of this echo of a conversation that Jesus must have had with Satan, somewhat kind of like in the book of Job. Uh, the word you in this verse is plural in Greek. He's saying, uh, disciples and, and Simon, I know that, that Satan has been asking to sift you all, to separate you all from me, but then he turns in the next verse to Peter, the you shifts, and now it's singular. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is good news for Peter, isn't it? His, Jesus says, I'm praying for you. Isn't that neat? He's making intercession for him. He's saying, I'm not going to leave you alone, that I am working on your behalf. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus predicts his denial. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pull over once more. To us, this seems silly too, doesn't it? I mean, we're on the outside looking in. We can fast forward to the end of chapter 22. If you go back to your Bible and you look at verse 54, it's the account of when Peter denies Jesus out by the fire after he's been arrested and he's on trial. At the end of this, uh, he, the, uh, Luke records how Peter remembers how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows today you will deny me three times verse 62 and he went out and he wept bitterly what's happening here that Peter is being proud back back to the upper room he's being proud he's arrogant he's not listening to Jesus he's in denial about the fact that he will deny Jesus he's in denial about his own denial which is the hidden nature of pride 
It's different than other sins. When you're angry and you make a mistake because you're angry, you can tell that your anger is a problem. Pride is very different. By its very nature, it's hidden. Which means that you should, and I should, make it our default position that we are far more proud and far more arrogant than we think we are. Peter blows right through the warning signs. And so Jesus has to prove it to him, that it's a problem for him. The rooster crows, he's cut to the heart, he weeps bitterly because he knows he's at fault and he should have paid attention. He should not have ignored the warning signs. He could have done something about it, but he didn't. Years ago, I was in a car accident. My first car that I bought with my own money after college graduation was a two-door Honda Accord in blue. And I was driving in the left of two lanes and there was a car that was making a left-hand turn that crossed traffic in front of me to go around me, but this guy waited way too long to come out into traffic, and so it was his fault when I clipped the back end of his car behind the driver's side rear wheel. He spun around, airbags deployed. You know, the sound of metal on metal in a car accident is one of the most terrible sounds to me because it sets in motion a chain of events. You know, is someone injured? Uh, what about the car? Is it broken? What, are we going to fix it? What about the insurance? I mean, all those things that that one sound sets in motion. My dad was in the passenger seat. I remember him saying something as it was happening. And as I look back on that event, I realize now that the lane uh, next to me, to the right, was empty. I could have swerved, probably could have gone around him, probably could have avoided the wreck altogether, but I didn't. I could have done something, and the accident could have been avoided. How about Jesus? Let's look at this same series of events from his point of view. Because he does something. He is patient with his friends. He doesn't have to be. And he prays for them. And he warns them. And he could have stopped them altogether, but he doesn't. The evil in the room has already set in motion a terrible chain of events. There is Judas the betrayer, and there are the arrogant disciples, and there is Peter in denial about the moments, uh, hours from now, when he will forsake his own friend. Jesus could have hit the brakes and stopped it altogether, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus does the one thing that he must do. He lets it happen. And he takes his hands off the wheel of his life and he puts himself in harm's way and he allows these events and the evil in the room 
the evil at work that night to do its worst. To take his life. And Jesus still wins. So that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Here in this upper room, we find Jesus numbered among the transgressors. The words of Isaiah the prophet are like a stone thrown in a pool of water that ripple across time. Because in a matter of hours, we'll see Jesus on the cross numbered among two transgressors on his right and on his left. We'll find Jesus above religious leaders and soldiers who are mocking him, telling him to save himself and to be the greatest, but he doesn't do that. The circles of the stone ripple wider. They reach back to the evening before. In the room that night, Jesus is standing here among transgressors, among Peter and his disciples, and the circle widens and reaches out into the future, To this room because here are more transgressors and Jesus is in our midst and he is patient he is praying he is warning he is dying for your transgressions and for mine that my friends is greatness. The great one, Jesus Christ, who became small, weak unto death for you and for me. How can you become great like him? Greatness if it's not caring about being great and greatness if it's not caring about being small. It means doing things that are hard whether they're necessary or not. It means doing things that are small, that seem insignificant to the world, and not caring if anyone cares. It means doing them with joy, because they're not for you at all. They're for him who did all things for you and for your neighbor, who needs you to be you in the place where you are. You do that, and you'll be great in the eyes of the only one who really matters. Jesus Christ, crucified for you and for me. Amen.